Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Timothy. I'm going to read numerous verses tonight, and then we'll connect them. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Chapter 4 and verses 6 through 10. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. I don't know if you've ever watched... One of my favorite, I think, um, has a lot of Christian overtones to it. But if you watch the series, The Lord of the Rings, or read the books, um, I read them a long time ago when I was growing up as a kid, but then movies have been out far more recently than that. But one of the interesting characters in The Lord of the Rings is Gollum. And he is a hobbit. And although... um, you would never know that if you watched it um, on the movies at first because he doesn't look like one. And hobbits are described by Tolkien in this book, Fellowship of the Ring. He says, Hobbits were a pleasant folk, short in stature, large feet, uh, good-natured, hospitable, delighted in parties and presents which they gave away freely and accepted eagerly. So they're kind of a unique, fun, loving kind of people. But when you see Gollum, he looks like anything but that. And, the, and his name really originally was Trahald, which was anglicized to be Smeagol. Those are some of the names they call him. But if you watch him, his appearance was so amazingly altered that he was virtually unrecognizable as a hobbit. You really would never have known he was one. And he became extremely thin, and he was wiry, kind of dark-skinned, flat-footed, He had wispy hair, what was left of it, hardly any of it, if you've ever seen the movie. Long hands and nails and these bulging eyes. I mean, he's pretty monstrous looking uh, character. In fact, Tolkien describes him in his words, he's a loathsome little creature. Uh, That's what he called him. 
But it's interesting, if you read the whole novel and read the whole thing, watch the movies, it's that I ask, what accounts for Gollum's transformation? How did he go from this nice, fun-loving hobbit to this monstrous, little, loathsome creature? Well, the answer is a disordered love. Um, Gollum's obsession, and that's not an understatement, with the one ring, it's called the great ring, the ring of power, it has become his everything. In fact, if you know this, he calls it something. He calls it, yes, my precious. I mean, he talks to it when he has it. Even when he doesn't have it, he talks to it. I mean, it is everything in his life. He, it wouldn't be so far to say he was addicted to it, enslaved to it. It was everything to him, and eventually it cost him everything. I read an author who said Gollum was a creature whose insides were on his outside. And the reason he looked so deformed and decrepit was because that's how he really was on the inside. Um, one author said that's what you call someone who has a visible soul, that when you look on their outside, you can see what they're really like on the inside. I wrote down in my notes, his inverted affections mastered and maligned him. I mean, he got his whole inside world of desires and passions turned completely upside down because he loved the wrong thing too much. He was, in the end, really, he was destroyed by his desires. And then I wrote this, and there's a little golem in all of us. There really is. My preface tonight, or my premise tonight, is disordered loves produce disordered lives. Gollum is just an example, a very clear example about disordered loves producing a disordered lives. It was true for Gollum, and it was also true for a character in the text of Scripture we read tonight, and his name was Demas. It says in the text, in 2 Timothy 4, in verse 10, for Demas, in love, let's circle it, because that's our focus word tonight. Those passages I read you were all the times in the book of 2 Timothy where love is mentioned. Demas, in love with this present world, he had a disordered love, and it gave him a disordered life. Now, can I, listen, it wasn't always that way with Demas. Did you know Demas is mentioned three times in the scriptures? Obviously, one is in this text. Two are at the end of the epistles written by the apostle Paul. One is called Colossians. The other is Philemon. Colossians 4.14 mentions Demas right alongside of what he, Paul says, the beloved physician Luke, which seems to be his best friend. So Paul's one of his best friends, Luke, is Demas is mentioned right alongside him. So at the time when Colossians was written, uh, Demas seems to be really, really close to Paul. Co-worker. We find co-worker is how he's described in the next one. In Philemon chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 24, it mentions him again with Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke again, seemingly making a team. 
Demas is mentioned. Greetings come from these men. And one of these men that greet these churches that Paul had ministered to or started was Demas. And so imagine, Demas is a guy who has gone around probably for a number of years with the Apostle Paul, has been to great places, seen Paul preach, heard him preach, seen him do amazing things, maybe even miraculous things, has seen all the people from the different nations and the churches and places get saved. I mean, he has seen God's hand at work, maybe like few other people in the New Testament have. And at one point in Demas's life, he had a well-ordered love. I mean, he loved God, he loved the gospel, he loved the ministry, he loved the church. I mean, he had a well-ordered love and that had a well-ordered life and seemingly right alongside the Apostle Paul, God was using him. But it didn't stay that way. You see, a well-ordered love is not automatic. It must be maintained. You may have it for a while. You may have it for years. It may be true. And I could tell you stories, and I won't mention names, and I won't mention what church, but I could tell you stories of people who were committed, people who were faithful, and people who were looked up to, people who were examples, and it was like that for a lot of years. But it didn't end that way. It didn't stay that way. Because a well-ordered love in a well-ordered life is something that has to be maintained. And for Demas, he did not. The Bible says that some point of his life, in 2 Timothy, and the cause and the context of the letter, is going to give us a hint of what that probably was. But the text is pretty clear. What disordered his love was that he loved something else. He chose an alternative love. And the Bible describes it as this present world. At one point in his life, he was by Paul's side and wouldn't leave no matter what. But somehow he got to the place in his life that now he wouldn't want to be by Paul's side. And the Bible says, Paul describes it at, and he has deserted me. And the word deserted in the Greek means to leave in the lurch. It means when someone needs you the most, you bail on them. Right? This is what he has become. So he has gone from disciple to deserter. And the question the text begs us tonight, I believe, is this. How did it happen? Why did it happen? What accounts for Demas' transformation into a spiritual golem? See, the answer is the same. A disordered love. The, can I say it? The world, according to the Bible verse, had become his precious. It had. And Demas' insides were now visible on the outside because he had deserted the Apostle Paul. Flat out, have to ask you, what is your precious? You know, the Bible mentions the word precious six times in First and Second Peter. It's pretty interesting. You should do it as a study sometime. First Peter 1, 7 says we have a precious faith. We have Jesus' blood is precious. He's chosen by God and precious. Jesus himself is precious. If you live a godly life as a woman of virtue, your, your godliness is precious in his sight. We have precious promises in the scriptures. You see, there's all these kinds of things in the Bible, whether it's Jesus, his blood, his sacrificial death, living a life that honors him. See, those are the things that God says we ought to consider precious, the valuable things, the things that are absolutely most important above everything else in our lives. But here's our problem. It was Gollum's problem. It was Demas's problem. And like I said before, we all have a little Gollum. And you know what it is? is that we take too much heed to alternative loves. 
alternative loves. And in our culture, we are constantly bombarded, surrounded, as it were, by money and how precious it can be to us. Sexuality, pleasure, let me tame it down a little bit, food, acceptance by others, what our physical appearance really looks like, who our friends are, do we have popularity, power, position? You see, those things can kind of tempt you, entice you to become your present, your precious in, in your life. And you have to decide, and here's the maintain part, you have to really decide every single day whether Jesus will be your precious or other things that will take his place. Augustine said that a rightly ordered love is the secret of a holy and fulfilling life. According to Augustine, the early church father, he said, if you get this down and have a well-ordered love, it's the secret to living for God. And I want to make, and I'm going to get your input. It's a little bit of a paragraph, but let me read it to you. And it's not in English like we would normally say it. It requires one, Augustine says, to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. In other words, you got to be able to look at your life to t- say, let me be honest with myself, what do I really love? Okay? He says, the right order of love, so that, here's what a right order of love is, he says, it, so that you do not love what is not to be loved. Number one. Number two, or fail to love what is to be loved. So either you love the wrong things or you don't love the right things. Then he says this, or have a greater love for what should be loved less. Or have a less love for something that should be loved greater. And so he makes some points out. He says, you know what a well-ordered love is? I wrote down this. It's easier for me than all of that. To love God supremely and everything else proportionately. To love God supremely and everything else proportionately. In other words, I love God here and everything else I love, I love in proportion to him. So I may love some things way down here and some things up here and somewhere in the middle, but all the things that I love are loved according to what? To the supreme love I have for God. And the problem with us, the golem in each one of us is, is we tend to mess this up. And if we're honest, probably on a somewhat regular basis. In fact, things that we love equal to God, the biblical word for that is idolatry. So let me ask you some things. Augustine went on to say this, you are what you love. So what we're talking about tonight is pretty much of a core issue. So let me ask you, number one, he said, you have to love what you you cannot love, what should not be loved. What are some things we shouldn't love? Now, these are obvious ones. Just name them. What should we not love? Okay, someone else's spouse. What? Go ahead. You laugh. It's true. So, money. Yes, because money is not bad, but First Timothy 6.10, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So loving money inordinately, we should not do that. What other, should, what other things should we not love? First John 2.15, someone quote it. Love not the, the world. Yes, so Demas, in love with this present world, broke that one. 
All the things that are part of the world system, right, should be loved less than God, and some of them, in fact, a lot of them, not at all, right? So inordinately sexual things we shouldn't love. We shouldn't love greed and covetousness and selfishness, not just the external fleshly things, right, but the internal spirit things that we should avoid too. So there are things not to be loved to have a well-ordered love. Watch. But we often fail not to love what should be loved. Give me some of those. What are some things that we should love, but we just don't? We should love, come on, easy. It, ready? We should love, the psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. So we should love this, right? But sometimes we don't. We should love Coming to church. We should love Pastor Walker's. Okay, maybe not. M- wife, yes, that's what I meant. Family, yes. What else should we love? We should love to and tell others about. We should love holiness, right? So there's a, what else should we We should love helping people who have needs. We should love each other. We should love that. Right? What else should we love? We should love justice and equity. We should love our enemies. So see, here, here it is. It's not just, see, it's not just, what should I say, love by subtraction, getting rid of the things we shouldn't. It's also love by addition, right? It's loving the things that we should love. But listen, and, and those are hard enough, the two on their own, right? But then he says this, right? Now we're going to get detailed. He says, loving something greater which should be loved less. What are some of those things? Pastor Dave, what was, I'm sorry, yes, the eagles, thank you. <laughs> we, we love them probably too much. They should be loved less. I mean, like, wait, wait. Love less. Yes. <laughs> wow. Why are you clapping? I don't love Mountain Dew. I'm just very fond of it. You think you know who your friends are, don't you? Other than the last one, what are some other ones? All right. What are some other ones? Thank you. Celebrities. We should love them far less, if at all. That might be in the other category. Yes. What? Videos, yeah, depending on what that video is, yeah. Yes, that's, see, that's a good one. I think, I think your own children. You know, I told you, um, my wife is in, is in nursery. nursery, yeah. So I told you one of my romantic things I say to my wife is I love you second. Now, I know most people wouldn't think that was very romantic. But I want her to know that I love her proportionately. And I would do her a great disservice to love her more than she should be loved. Now, that doesn't mean I don't love her a lot. I, I certainly do. Um, but I love God supremely. And I'll tell all my kids that, that I love you, but I don't love you enough not to discipline you. I don't love you enough to not give you what you want all the time. And I don't love you enough to tell you, you won't do that in my house. Or you're going the wrong direction. And I, so, so we can love our children too much, and let me tell you, let me, we can love what too much? What else? Yes, thank you. I thought that would be the first one out of everybody's mouth. 
love ourselves too much, and we could go to town on that application, right? Right? We could love food too much. I need to come forward. Food and drink. I'm in trouble tonight here. Right? And we on we, it. So there's things that are love that we should love less. Now, now watch, though. Here's the last one. Lesser things that should be loved greater. What are things that we love, but we just don't love them enough? Okay. It may be that our spouses could fit in either one of those categories. Our children could fit in both of those categories at times, depending on the circumstance and who it is. Yes, we don't love our neighbors enough because we can't find the ability to overcome our fears to share the gospel, have them over to our house. Maybe that's the case. Yes, we, we should love God. Actually, we should love God greater. What else? Surfing? Surfing. Surfing. Say, okay, surfing, I'll hear that. <laughs> Serving, yes. Yeah, I know. Wait, yeah, okay. Okay. So, what does it cause us to do? Well, C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it this way. It's probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him or her too much in proportion to our love for God. Listen to this. But it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for that person that constitutes the inordinacy. In other words, you may think somebody say, oh, you really love that person too much. And you know what he said? I.E. Deborah. You may, you, oh, someone may tell you, you just love your kids too much. And here's what C.S. Lewis would say. You probably can't love any person too much, but it seems like it because your love for God is so small. <laughs> That's what he's trying to say. It's the smallness of our love for God, he says. So key question, how can I have a well-ordered love that produces a well-ordered life? Well, you have to have two things I think Second Timothy is going to teach us tonight, and let me unpack each one of them. First, you, don't ha- you have to know how to respond to this kind of pressure. Look at chapter 1 and verse 7. And, and So let me tell you, there is constant pressure to have a disordered love in our culture. And it doesn't matter your gender, your age. It doesn't matter your position. None of that matters. Everyone has to deal with this issue. And here's the pressure. There are two of them, if you want to write them down. One is an inside pressure, and one is an outside pressure. Let me show you the inside pressure. 2 Timothy is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. His last letter he ever wrote, seemingly within months of writing this epistle, he had his head cut off as a martyr for Christ. Roman citizens could not be crucified. Peter was crucified upside down uh, because he was Jew and a slave. Roman citizens like Paul could not be crucified or treated in horrific ways that way. So you were marched outside of town. You put your head down and they cut your head off. That was what you did. That was supposedly be merciful and kind. So seemingly 2 Timothy was the last letter he ever wrote. He is going to be dead and he knows it. You can read it in our text. He says, I finished the race. I've run my course. I've kept the faith. He goes, I know I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. I know my life is almost over. So he is in prison as he writes this in the maritime prison, which was basically a hole in the ground. They put you on a rope, let you down there. Prisoners were not taken care of by the government like today. 
uh, you had friends, and friends would come, and they would bring you things like food and clothing. If you didn't have friends, you died there, and they left you there till you died. That's how it went. He's in maritime prison in a hole, probably very hard to see, very damp, literally probably filled with rats and things like that. And to be associated with Paul in a Roman prison, knowing that you're in that prison waiting for death, was risky. Therefore, you're, you're associating with a known Christian who's going to be killed, and you come risky. It's a risk for you as well. That's why he writes these verses. 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In other words, don't be ashamed of me, and don't stop coming to see me, and don't be afraid of any of that. And that's why the verse before our verse says this. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, Circle it. That is the inside pressure. Inside, there's this pressure that doesn't want to make Jesus as precious as he should be in our lives. And it wants to disorder our loves. It wants to, out of fear, put other loves equal to or more than him. And that's what fear does. It seeks to disorder our loves. And it does it by placing a love for ourself, which takes the form of my health, my well-being, my comfort, my security above God, above the gospel, and about, above the needs of others. We have all felt it. Fear disorders your love, and here's how it manifests itself. You care more about what others think than what God thinks. What others will think and how that will affect you more than how it affects your relationship with God. You do it with your friends. And I, would see, I have seen girls who will dress immodestly because even though they know it's wrong, but because why? Because all the other girls dress that way. And there's a fear that I will not be accepted by everybody else. And so I know girls who have told me stories that when they leave the house, they dress this way, but they take clothes with them. And when they get in the car and their girlfriend picks them up, they change clothes. Because that's, there's a fear inside. I'm not going to be the only one who doesn't look this way. And guys, I'm not going to be the only one who doesn't talk this way and tell these stories. And let me tell you, it's not teenagers only. You could go to a job and everybody does this to, to kind of get close to the boss, to earn their promotion. So when the boss says, hey, after work, we're all going out for this drink and we're all going to this place. And everybody else goes along with it. See, the fear is... If I don't do that, I won't get the promotion. I won't get the raise. I won't get in good with the boss. It'll stunt my pr progress up the corporate ladder. Fears. Jesus then becomes less precious to us, and it disorders our loves. And it's not just our friends. It's not just our boss. It's actually some people have it in unsaved family members that they have, who pressure them not to take God so seriously, not be so committed. Come on, let's go do this. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. Let's go. See, it's family, it's people, and the fear on the inside. That'll be the only one who doesn't do this, the only one who doesn't think this way, the only one who doesn't talk this way, dress this way, listen to this music, act this way, have these morals, have these priorities. See, fear, he says, be careful. Fear disorders your love. 
And you don't want to be around. You love me, Timothy, Paul would say, right? You love the gospel, but don't be afraid. And here it is. It's other form of shame. I'm ashamed. I don't want to be, I, you know, privately I'm okay with the Jesus stuff, but publicly is another matter. And here's what he says. You are what you love. And that's why the verse says, God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power and love. Here, listen to me. You know why? Because fear and love are mutually exclusive. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18 says this, there is no fear in love because perfect love, complete love, casts out fear. In other words, how do I know if I'm controlled by fear or I'm controlled by love? And the answer is, which one controls you? When you have a chance to stand up for Jesus and you don't, fear. When you have a chance to stand up for Jesus and you find the words to say and you do what is right to do, love. Hear, hear what he said? Because perfect, complete love exercises. And it's like the same word used to exercise or cast out a demon. So here's the kind of love that is the precious love. The most precious love is a love that exercises the demon, can I say, a fear out of you. It overcomes it in your life. So here's what he says. You know, here's the first problem, pressure, and it's an inside pressure. The fear and shame of making Jesus all that he should be in your life. It's not an easy thing. Here's what he says. You're going to face that, and you've got to know how to deal with it. And then there's an outside pressure. The next text that deals with love is in chapter 3, the one we read. If you'll turn there. There's a number of compound words I want to show you because they all go together to make a point. He says, here's what I call it last day lovers in the end times. He's, for people will be, see it in verse 2, first kind, mark them, self-lovers. That's how it is in the original, self-lovers. And they will be money lovers. That's the second one. See it? Down in verse 4, they will be pleasure lovers. But they will not be God lovers. See how he does that? So you have self lovers, money lovers, pleasure lovers, but not God lovers. Now watch. He put them all. See, you have the three here against the one because that's what outside pressure does. The pressure is you live in a culture in the last days where everyone loves everything they should not love and forgets what they should love, and that's God. That's where you and I live. We live in a culture filled with self-lovers, money lovers, pleasure lovers, but not God lovers. So that means everywhere you and I go, we're going to find very few people who think God is the most precious thing that there is. We live in a world, I'd <laughs> be nice, we live in a world full of golems. Our world has become obsessed with self-loving, money-loving, and pleasure-loving. And they don't know it, but they are destroying themselves from the inside out. Discon they are disfiguring themselves. And I can tell you literally people I've seen who have been self-lovers, money lovers, and pleasure lovers, and when I saw them 10 years ago and I see them now, I would not know it was the same person because that sin has destroyed them. People I would never have known that would happen. They have alternative pressures. 
And we live in a culture and a society that is constantly breeding golems, deformed people with disordered loves. And it ends up, listen, with a disordered life. Look at the text now. I pointed out the love terms. Look at the rest of it. See, when your love is disordered, your life is going to be disordered. Now watch what their life becomes. Look at the text. They become proud, arrogant, abusive. Watch this one, parents. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, no self-control, brutal. They don't love good. They're treacherous or looking for things to find that are wrong. Reckless. And they do all this thing and they're arrogant about it. They're conceited about it. They brag about it, it says. Now watch, but none of that means that they're not religious. What? It doesn't mean that they do, they do all of these things, but they're not irreligious. Because verse 5 says, having the appearance, and the word means form or framework. In other words, on the outside, they look godly, like they really think something of God. And they may even talk Christianese and know the Bible vocabulary to sling around. They know that stuff, he says. He says, but they deny its power. In other words, there's no reality to it. It isn't changing their lives. They're not becoming more like Jesus. It's just a shell. It's a facade. It's fake. He says, you know what you should do? Turn away from those kind of people. Don't have anything to do with them, he says. Disordered loves produce disordered lives if we don't know how to handle the inside and the outside pressure that is constantly going to be around us. Second and last thing to unpack is not only pressure, but perspective. In our text in chapter 4, the last one, notice the comparison of love between what Paul loves and what Demas loves. Paul says, verse 8, Now that he's come to the end of his life, he's finished his race, he's followed Jesus for the last 30 years. He says, now here's the result, ready? Verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Notice this, which the Lord, the righteous judge, I'm going to stand before God someday. And he will award it to me, and I circled it on that day, that day of judgment. I'm going to stand before Jesus and he's going to look at my life and he's going to say, well done, Paul, because you chose me to be the most precious thing over and over and over and over in your life. And there's going to be a reward for that. He says, I'm going to get a crown on my head because Jesus worked in me and I loved him and he was the most valuable thing in my life. And I didn't succumb to the alternative pressures of finding other things more precious than him. See, he says, watch. And what's the sign of that being true? He says, not only to me, well, not only will I get the crown, but everybody else, now circle it, who has loved his appearing. Contrast that love, I can't wait till Jesus comes back so I can stand before him. I'm not afraid of standing before him. I love it. I can't wait. I'm eager for it because I know I live the life that makes him most valuable. And watch, but Demas isn't like that. It says, for Demas, in his love for the present world. See, Paul's eye 
He lives in the present, but his eye is on the future. Demas' eye and his life are both in the present. He's lost perspective. Demas has loved this present world and he's deserted me. He's turned his back on the gospel. He isn't going to identify with me. He's not willing to risk anything for the gospel. He's not going to suffer. He's not going to put Jesus first. He's not doing any of that. Demas is now devoted to himself, self-preservation, self-security. He says, a disordered love always loses perspective. It makes today more important than that day. It lives for the present and ignores the future. And that's why not young people, but adults as well, can only, they usually live right here with what they can see in front of their face. They make choices based on how they feel now and how other people feel now and what's good now. And they don't realize that the decisions you're making, small and great now, will determine your future then. In this life and in the life to come. And here's what Paul says. Demas lost that perspective. He didn't say, hey, someday I'm going to be judged by God. We forget all of that. We forget about eternity and dying. I was at a funeral today, and I'm standing before the casket thinking, Lord, soon it's going to be my turn. And I'm going to be there, and I'm going to stand before you, and I want to have the confidence that you were supreme in the affections of my heart. I don't want Gollum in my life. And the perspective is, is they value now over later. And so we have a generation of young people today who want to be rich now, but not rich later. They want to be materially rich, but not spiritually rich. They want to be accepted by their friends now, and they forget about whether they'll be accepted by God later. They want crowns now and success now, but they forfeit it for later. They want to be pleased now, and they want to be happy now, and they forfeit later over it. Augustine, and I close with this, said, and it's, it's worth memorizing, he loves thee too little who loves anything with thee that he loves not for thy sake. Let me say it again. He loves you, God, too little who loves anything with you. In other words, anything else I love in this life, if I don't love it in relationship to how I love you, he says, then I love it the wrong way. A well-ordered love and a well-ordered life, they go together. And yet today, you and I will make choices yet, see? Some of us will love sleep so much inordinately that we won't get up to read our Bibles and pray before we leave tomorrow. We won't. And it will be a result of a disordered love for many. And we choose to not be in church and we choose to value things that should be valued less. And we let our children do the same thing. And Augustine says, we love God too little if we don't love everything that we love for his sake. For his sake. Demas forsook me, he says. And the reason was, is he had a disordered love. So one more time. What do you love the most? And if it's God, and it should be, in Latin it's sunum bonum. It's the supreme love, the supreme good. God is the only supreme good. Anything substituted for him will be inferior. And the question is, do you love God supremely? And that, if not, 
you are loving something that eventually will destroy your life and has that potential. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. It's good for us if we can, can I say it, evaluate our lives objectively and say, God, I want you to be supreme good, the supreme love of my heart. May the Lord help us do that. Let's pray. Before we're dismissed tonight and I close in prayer, would you just take a minute? Would you take more than that later on this week? But for now, a minute? And would you honestly evaluate objectively your loves? Could be things that you love too little that should be loved more. Things you love greater that should be loved less. Things you should not be loving at all. And maybe that means you're going to have to change the channels on your TV. Maybe you're going to have to dump your boyfriend. You have to change your friends. I don't know. You may have to change your job. Secret of a holy life, Augustine says, is a well-ordered love. Because if it's disordered, your life will follow suit. Would you just ask God tonight to say, as I study your word and pray and keep following you, would you show me if my life is well-ordered and it's love? Heavenly Father, all of us tonight, and every day, in fact, have a choice. God or Gollum. We have to choose what will be our precious. Theoretically, in our hearts and minds, all of us know that you are infinitely more glorious and infinitely more beautiful and better and that we sing this little chorus and nothing I desire compares to you. We know that you are better than anyone and anything, infinitely better. But somehow our lives betray it. And we let Gollum sneak in and slip in our lives, sometimes in the back door, sometimes to the front door. Father, I pray that we would live a well-ordered love that would produce a well-ordered life, that when people see us, they would see that you matter most and that everything else we love is loved in proportion in relationship to you. Help us to do that the more. In the areas where it's not true, would you please have mercy on us and forgive us and give us the ability and the grace to fight against this disordered love around us in our culture that we might find Jesus as our true precious one. For it's in his name we pray, amen.